Fatal Attraction. Uh, anyone seen Fatal Attraction? You were in Fatal Attraction? It was about you. No, <laughs> okay. Uh, Fatal Attraction, a while ago. Uh, what's it a movie about? Adultery, yeah, okay. So Michael Douglas, actor from a while ago, he's pretty good, uh, has an affair with his blonde bombshell, Glenn Close. Uh, turns out she's a psycho, starts stalking him. He was just having a little fling on the weekend. Uh, she's becomes absolutely obsessed with him and uh, tries to kill him and his wife. And anyway, it's all bloody and nasty and it's a psycho thriller. There you go. Uh, but the phrase fatal attraction, anyone know uh, what that means? Uh, what's a, what is a fatal attraction? Well, maybe uh, Pat suggests it's, it, it, it's uh, when you're attracted to something that just kind of ends and falls. But well, it's when you're in love with someone or something that in the end is doing you great harm. That's why it's a fatal attraction because it's hurting you. And the problem is you lose any sense of reason or logic, so you can't see, you can't accept that it's doing you damage. And if the obsession goes on, it may well destroy you in the end, uh, kind of like a drug or alcohol addiction. Um, and you can't help it. And, and though everyone else can see it, they might point it out to you that this guy, this girl, whatever it is, is doing you no good. They're only damaging you and destroying you. You just excuse it and you explain it all the way or you, you justify it or blame other people or things for the problems. Well, today in Isaiah, God through his prophet is going to expose what is perhaps the greatest of all fatal attractions for all of humanity, both for us and for everyone who has ever lived, both individuals and nations, both modern and ancient, the fatal attraction, it might not even sound that bad. And you don't even get why it's so wrong in God's sight. The fatal attraction we all have with idolatry, that is with the worship and, and the giving of ourselves to things that are not God as if they were. That's what idolatry is, the worship or the giving of ourselves to things that are not God as if they were God. And for Judah of old, it was obvious to anyone who cared to look that they had a fatal attraction with idolatry. It was blatant, uh, they were fascinated by, they worshipped, they were besotted by all the gods of all the nations around about them, uh, whoever or whatever seemed the most powerful at the time. And it never did them any good. It only ever hurt them and did them harm, and in the end it led to their destruction. And while the worship of idols has been mentioned several times by Isaiah towards now, the sheer depth of God's hatred towards it, uh, nor, not that or nor the reasons why he hates it so much have ever been fully explained up until now. Now, for those who have not been with us, uh, we've been working through the book of Isaiah for a couple of months now, and we started last week on the second half of the book, which begins in Isaiah chapter 40, and it's all about the great comfort, the great comfort that God is promising to bring. Uh, the wonder of his love is he lays out his, his incredible rescue plan to come himself in person, to pay for our sins and to draw us back to himself. But in the heart of this epic description of a, a breathtakingly wonderful future lies one of the most vehement attacks of the Bible against any practice and it's particularly against this one practice that God sees as the most wicked and evil of things. And such is his hatred of it that God will resort to the most vitriolic language and even downright mockery in order that uh, 
his people of old and his people today like us might never, ever, ever, ever be tempted to do it again. And second, that we might flee into the arms of the true and living God whose power and majesty, love and care are all that we ever need. And the big question I guess we're confronted with coming out of this section in Isaiah that we're looking at tonight is why does God care so much about it? Why does he care? Why is it so deeply offensive to him? I mean, after all, you want to bow down to a block of wood or you know, have another kind of name for God or so. Why does that matter? Isn't that just all the same? Isn't that just reaching out to him? Shouldn't that be something he smiles on? Well, there's two reasons God hates it so much. First reason, because it's just downright insulting to him. Uh, Last week we saw that incredible passage in Isaiah 40 summarising just who God is. God is awesome in majesty. He's the creator of everything. He's infinitely wise. He's totally sovereign. He's worthy of more worship than we could ever give him. He's incomparable. He's enthroned in glory. And even though he is so thumping huge and powerful, that he could just kind of swat you out like that. He loves you with a care and a tenderness and compassion that cannot be fathomed. And that's who God is. And, and over, again, over again in Isaiah 40, he asked that question, to whom will you compare God? In fact, he asked that question, uh, I don't know, 50, 60 times throughout the next 10 chapters. To whom then will you compare me, says God? Or in chapter 40, he asked, what image will you compare him to? And you get to chapter 44 and verse 6 and you find out just who the people of Judah were comparing him to. They've got an answer. Who compares to God? The answer is nothing. And they say, well, actually, we've got this pretty cool God over here and we've got this other one and and this one's pretty awesome. (laughs) This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first, I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. He's not saying... People don't regard things as God. He's he's quite aware people worship other so-called gods. But he's saying that all of them are nothing. They're nada, they're hopeless, they're pathetic, they're shadows of the reality. And for the people of Judah, God's own nation, there should have been absolutely no confusion about God's attitude to idols and other gods. You you think of the law of Moses, the, the national law of Israel. Anyone think what... Um, the first few commandments, I mean, there's about 400 different commandments in the law of Moses. How do they start? What's a very famous part of the Bible? What was that? Hmm? They're called the Ten Something. The Ten Commandments. Okay, that's the start of the statutes of God that he handed down to them at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments. And how do they start? <laughs> Well, commandment number one is, uh, or hang on, let's think through the commandments. Um, I'm pretty sure there's something against murder maybe, um, and I think it says don't do it. Uh, Stealing, yeah, I think that's wrong. Uh, No, number one, first commandment in the law of God, you shall have no other gods but me. Exodus 20 and verse 3, no other gods but me. The second commandment, what's the second commandment? You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Why? Why does God say that? He gives an explanation. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. 
Now, you might wonder, how come this, why does he bother having two commandments about it? Aren't they saying the same thing? Don't have any other gods, don't make images of things and worship them. Isn't that, isn't that the same command twice? Why don't we just have nine? Uh, well, it's not really the same commandment twice. It's capturing two different things. One's about the worship of other gods and one's about the false worship of the true God. You can worship God the wrong way and you can worship false gods. And they're both wrong and God hates them both. Don't have any other gods and don't make statues of things and worship them as God, even if you're going to call it Yahweh, the God of Israel. And those two commands work themselves out over and over again in the rest of the law of Moses, right through the end of the book of Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. So, for example, Deuteronomy chapter 6, do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God and his anger will burn against you and he will destroy you from the face of the land. You know, you, the one thing, God is just going to wipe you out if you do it. Idolatry. <laughs> that, the God who made the universe, uh, the one who holds it all the the one that loves with a love that is everlasting, that cannot be matched or fathomed, the one who is pure and holy and has no spark of evil about him at all. The one who is both mighty to save and has the tenderest compassion, he's the one who describes himself as a jealous God. And he's jealous with a godly and righteous jealousy. You think when we get jealous, uh, we get jealous of other people because they've got better stuff than us, a nicer car or whatever it is, and, and it's totally wrong. That's, it's envy. You know, It's wanting what they've got and you know, thinking, well, I deserve it as much as they. How come they've got it? And I, I don't. I, it's not fair. I want it. Give it to me now. You know, and I might even steal it if I, you know, really, really want it. Um, but God, He's jealous because, well, He made us and He owns us, and yet we're trying to, you know, give ourselves to someone else, someone that's not Him. And, and He says He's jealous. He's jealous for His own glory. He's jealous that everything he is and that everything he gives and everything he does never, ever be attributed to anything else, another one. Jealous that anything other than he become the meaning and the purpose of our lives. Worse than murder, worse than adultery, worse than theft, worse than lying, idolatry is the worst sin of all according to God because it moves God from the centre of our lives to the periphery of our lives and it puts something else in his place. It gives something else to glory that should be God's alone. And so God hates idolatry because it's insulting to him. But he's not just concerned about himself. There's a second reason that God hates it so much. And that is because he so deeply cares about us. And he knows how stupid, how dumb, how utterly foolish it would be to believe, to worship, to trust in, to stake your life upon something that's a complete fraud which can only hurt you and let you down, that won't be able to deliver the godlike status that, that you're giving it. And the vast bulk of Isaiah 44 and then a section at the end of chapter 45 and again through chapter 46 are all about how foolish, how stupid you'd have to be to trust a fake God. 
It's utterly absurd, says God. And, and to explain the absurdity, he gives at least six reasons why worshipping statues and false gods is so ridiculous and so stupid that people would pray to them and glorify them and even sacrifice their worldly possessions to these frauds. Reason number one. Here we go. Six reasons. Reason number one. Because idols are made by people, whereas we are made by God. You know? and, and, and it should tell you something that we made it because humans, generally speaking, are weak and pathetic. We're small and tiny when compared to God. Uh, we're, we're, why, why would something that we make then become God Almighty? And so verse 9 of 44, All who make idols are nothing. And the things they treasure are worthless. Those who speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit him nothing? He and his kind will be put to shame. Craftsmen are nothing but men. Let them all come together and take their stand. They'll be brought down to terror and infamy. The blacksmith takes a tool and he works it with the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm, but then he gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and he grows faint. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and, and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in the form of man, in, as man in all his glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. Isn't it great? We can make this, this awesome-looking little god and put him in a little house and pat him on the head and give him some stuff. And isn't that lovely? Oh, no, God save me. Oh, it's wonderful. And, and it's ridiculous that people are doing it. And they're doing it all over the world today. They've been doing it forever. And, and they will go on doing it. It's made by man. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous because God in creation makes man in his own image. And he makes us so that we can worship him. We go around and make an idol. Not so he can worship us, but so that we can bow down to it. It's just a whole ridiculous. Reason number two, why, why the worship of idols is so dumb. Because of what they're made of. What is an idol made of? Wood, stone, stuff. Bits of creation like lumps of clay. <laughs> kind of maybe gold. Ooh, pretty stuff. <laughs> but that's all it is. Verse 14, you know, he cuts down cedars. Or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine. And the rain made it grow. This is one of my favourite parts of the Bible. Here you go. It is man's fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. But he also fashions a god and worship it, worships it. He makes an idol and he bows down to it. Half the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and he eats his fill. He also warms himself. Ah, I am warm. I see the fire. Ooh, the flames. Yeah, kind of pretty. But from the rest, he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and he worships. He prays to it and says, save me. You are my god. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over. They cannot see. And their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say. They're all too thick. To think, half of it I use for fuel. I even bake bread over the coals. I roast at midnight I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Because that's all you're doing. He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, Is not this thing at my right hand 
a lie. How dumb is it that anyone does it, that they worship blocks of wood? And yet we do. We won't look up all the next few reasons. You can read through yourself and see them. I'll just point out where they are. Uh, reason number three, idols, they need help getting around. Okay? They, they don't travel anywhere themselves. You've got to pick them up. You've got to put them on a, on a horse and cart and you know, drag them around. They need leading around, unlike God who's, you know, he can move under his own steam. Uh, you know, you've got to cradle them in your arms and rock them to sleep at night and... <laughs> Uh, that's uh, 46 verse 1 and 2, for example. Uh, if you don't move them, they're just kind of stuck there in the rain. Uh, reason number four, they can be captured and destroyed. You know, you're walking along with your little idol here, you trip over and, ah! oh no, there goes God. Um, chapter 46 verse 2. Uh, reason number five, idols, they never answer you. They, they just can't. They're, they're completely deaf and dumb. They don't answer when you call and pray though you might, they never hear you. For example, chapter 46 and verse 7. But the last and saddest reason why worshipping false gods and idols is so pathetic and absurd. Reason number six, idols cannot save you. He says it over and over again, but come to chapter 45 and verse 20. Gather together and come. Assemble you fugitives from the nations, ignorant of those who carry about idols of wood, who pray to gods that cannot save. You know, how, how can this ridiculous thing that's made up, it's made of wood or stone or gold, save you? It, it can't. It's powerless. It's, hope, it's a lie. You compare that to God over the next couple of verses. You know, Declare what is to be, present it, let them take counsel together. Whoever foretold this long ago, who declared it in the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a saviour. Yeah, they cannot save you, but I am the saviour. There is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Idols, you may think that they're representing something powerful and you know, that they can make a really good representation of what God would be like. I mean, what would be the most wonderful? A bull, a bull, powerful, strong, virile, you know, kind of out there. And But it's a statue and so it's it's lifeless. It's deaf, it's stupid, it can't move. It's, it's everything that God is not. And so it doesn't represent God, it misrepresents God. God who hears and answers, God who saves, God who is powerful and strong. And the people of Judah should have known all that. Time and time when they bothered to come back to God, he had saved them. And then he'd saved them again. And then he'd saved them some more. And then a little bit more. And every time they bothered to, to say sorry and to come back, he, he'd save them. And so there you are, six reasons why idols are the most stupid thing you could ever bow down to, worship, pray to, sacrifice to. Not only are they insulting to God, but they're made by people, they're made of stuff, they cannot move, they can be captured and destroyed, they're deaf and dumb, and they cannot save you. And I think when you put it as bluntly and as straightforwardly as that, you can't help but think, yeah, it's just obviously ridiculous. Like it's just making a mockery of them. But then someone might say, well, isn't that a bit unfair of Isaiah? I mean, it's, a, it's a caricature of idolatry. No, no one ever really thought 
the block of wood was to God, right? It's just it's a way of, of getting to God, of accessing the divine. You know, it's a straw man that Isaiah is attacking. And um, there are lots of people who are coming out, even Christians who are coming out saying, well, no, 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 it's just, it's just people who didn't know any better reaching out, reaching out and trying to grasp God. And, and God's so loving that, you know, he'll accept that as his worship. Well, it's all beside the point. Whether worshippers think the statue is the God or just the way to God they represent, what's really aroused Isaiah's scorn was the sight of a living man bowing down to something other than the incomparable living God. Regardless of whether that something was the idol itself or the deity represented, because they're all made up lies. Anyway, by which humans try and control and manipulate gods or the God. Okay? They're all false. They're all fakes. They're all frauds. So that's why God cares about it so much, why he hates idolatry with such a passion. And the reason he's speaking here so passionately through Isaiah, he's probably is because it was still and had always been the fatal attraction for Israel. They had bowed down to and worshipped and prayed to and offered themselves to every one of the gods around them over and over again through the centuries of their existence. In fact, unless you were here this morning, does anyone remember how long it took for Israel after receiving the, the Ten Commandments and all the rest of the law? Okay, it got, got handed down to them. Yeah, let's call that day zero. Uh, how long did it take them to break commandments number one and two? Now, was it ten years? Is it, was it two years? <laughs> Is it, was it a year? I'll tell you, okay, it's 40 days, 40 days, a month and a bit, and they'd made the golden calf and had a drunken orgy before it where they all just bonked each other in adoration of the God. Oh, yeah, but they called it Yahweh. This is Yahweh, their God, and this is the one that saved them out of Egypt and slavery, and they were really worshipping the true God through it. They didn't think that was God. They, and what was Aaron's excuse? You know, how, how did this golden calf come to be? Or um, accidentally was walking along and uh, tripped over and all my jewellery and all their jewellery fell into the fire and look, I popped this calf. We couldn't help it. Uh, but t- get drunk and take our clothes off and get busy. <laughs> like, this is the dumbest <laughs> excuse ever. And from there it went on and on and on. Any and every god of Canaan that they adopted. Uh, the gods of the surrounding nations of Aram and, and, and all those the gods of Assyria in Isaiah's time were the latest on the scene. King Ahaz had kind of ordered that to happen. And they'd gone, oh, that sounds good. Marduk, he looks like a god worth worshipping. And yet all of these so-called gods had proven to be worthless trash by Yahweh time and time again. And they were about to be tempted yet again when Babylon, who's just been promised is going to come by God, he says, I'm bringing Babylon to take you because of your rebellion, And it will appear that Bel and Nebo, the two great gods of Babylon, will be the most powerful gods of all. They will win. They'll not only bring Judah to its knees like Assyria did, but they'll kill or kidnap everyone in the land, all but the poorest, who they're just going to go, aren't worth it, and leave. And that's why Isaiah even foretells the end of those two gods who will be proclaimed the greatest of the so-called gods in the whole world. You know, they're going to look down from the sky and see their statues carried off and burnt and broken, and they'll go, but, but, 
We couldn't do anything about it because they're lies. And it's going to be destroyed at the hands of God in fulfilment of his promise given now, 150 years ahead of time. Now, perhaps it's all too easy to dismiss Isaiah's warnings here and to think, well, lucky we don't do idolatry then. <laughs> that would be really, really dumb, wouldn't it? You know? Um, you know, we don't have that kind of religious culture of idols and... Oh, hang on. Whoops, don't, don't look behind me. Anyway, we had a bit of discussion about that this morning. Uh, <laughs> there you go. Um, you know, and, and you know, it's not really that, you know, we're a secular community and, you know, who's really sacrificing to anything, you know, that's considered a God around us? We don't fall any, face any danger of falling into that trap. Why do we even need to read this part of this Bible? It's not, not something we need to worry about, right? But if you just open your eyes and... You can see it everywhere around us. I mean, just in terms of religion, how many of the world's religions find a home in Ingleburn and the, and the surrounding suburbs? I mean, both traditional religions and brand new cults. Within two minutes' walk of the front door, you can be eating in restaurants uh, that have shrines and statues to Buddha where there's food sacrificed to it daily and you see that there. Uh, there's shrines to the living god king of Thailand. Within five minutes' drive, you'll, you'll find a mosque for the worship of Allah. You'll find various other Islamic prayer centres. Uh, there's a Hindu temple up on Eagle View Road. There's various spiritual church, spiritualist churches popping up. There's a Mormon tabernacle up that way, up uh, off uh, Collins. Uh, the central office for the Jehovah's Witnesses for the whole of Australasia is just up on the hill there at Denham Court. They are supplying watchtower to New Zealand and Papua New Guinea and Southeast Asia and, and our country. And while some of them are false and bastardised versions of Christianity, they're no less worshipping idols, lies. And it's not just that there's buildings there, there's people in them. In fact, people are converting in their droves to all these things as they see the sort of fruitlessness of secularism and they're reaching out for something and they're finding answers in these places. Even one of the former Baptist minister's daughters has converted to Islam because, you know, there's a serenity and a peace in the worship of Allah. She didn't convert for a man. No, she's now married to a Muslim man and has kids and so on. But this is real. The signs of religion are every street corner if only we have eyes to see. All of them serving the worship of false gods, all of them claiming allegiance and all committing their followers down the same broad road of destruction by God as ancient Israel. And it should drive us to our knees in prayer, in tears, for our neighbours who are so blinded, they are so deluded that they would worship a lump of wood, something that is a lie that is made up. It's not harmless. But if we truly have eyes to see, then there's an even worse and far more insidious idolatry going on than that. An idolatry that... Even we ourselves may be locked up in a form of idolatry which is much more like a chameleon. You know, a chameleon changes its colours, you know, hides and blends in like I blend in up here. You can't even see me now. <laughs> a kind of idolatry that's constantly disguising itself so we're, we're scarcely aware of its presence even when we're in the full grip of it. And it's the great idolatry that both our Lord Jesus and his apostles warn us he's far more powerful than any of these other types and we dare not dismiss as something we would ever fall into. What does the New Testament warn 
of more than any other form of idolatry. Yeah, kind of greed. Greed. Ephesians 5 verse 5. Greed is idolatry. Colossians 3 verse 5. Greed is idolatry. Beware of greed. Get rid of all greed, which is idolatry. Jesus warns that the greatest competition to God for his disciples is what Elisha's just said, money. He says you cannot serve two masters. Either you'll love the one and hate the other or you'll serve the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Greed is idolatry. And it's idolatry because it turns us away from God towards things and and calls us to put our trust in it and, and in our belongings and in our finances and things. And it makes the pursuit of, of things of this world the passion of our lives. It, it promises deliverance from all of our ills, you know. Money, you can buy anything, can't you? And, and it delivers us uh, into the promise of everything we ever wanted if we would just serve it and honour it and worship it. But it's, it's just like the idols of old, right? It's, it's made by people. It's just made of stuff. It can't do anything. You have to move your money around. You've got to work hard to save it because it can't save itself. You know, it's, uh, it, it can be destroyed. You can lose all your stuff. You can, it, it can't save you in the end. I mean, it, it, it gives the semblance of being able to save you. You know, it can buy you pretend love, but it can't buy you love. It, you know, it can't, it can't buy you good health. I mean, it might be able to give you good medicine and, and help along the way, but but in the end you're going to die from some disease or other unless you get hit by a bus and have an accident instead. (laughs) Something will get you and no matter how much money, it cannot save you and it certainly cannot save you for eternity with God in joy in heaven. And I take it you could point to more than just greed for money but but the envy, the, the jealousy, the lifelong pursuit of experiences and adrenaline rushes, power, satisfaction, Toys, family even. In fact, the worship of anything that is not God but which we seek to invest our lives in as its meaning and purpose. It could all become an idol for us. And so perhaps the greatest challenge we could give to ourselves would be to ask ourselves a series of diagnostic questions to see just who is the real God we worship in our lives, whether it's the true and living God or whether it's a weak and pathetic substitute which is going to prove to be a fatal attraction for us, abandoning us when it most counts and not only failing to save but delivering us to destruction if we continue in it. And so I want to just give you here some diagnostic questions to write down, uh, to ask yourself, and I've got to ask myself these questions continually. All right, And if you, if you haven't got a pen or you want a list later, uh, one of the eight o'clockers came and asked me to photocopy it, and I've photocopied it all, and so you can take a copy of it if you can't be bothered writing it down. Here's some questions to ask yourself about who truly is God in your life. Okay. Who is the Lord that rules my life? Does Jesus make the decisions which guide me, or is it someone else or something else? Who's the Lord of my life? 
Who's the judge that I'm seeking the most approval from? Whose opinion of me matters the most? Is it God or is it someone else? Chances are if it's someone else, I'm an idolater. What do I plan for and pray for the most? What am I just really, really want to happen? You know, what do I long for most passionately? Where does my best time, energy, money, effort go? You know, if someone looked at my life and did a critical analysis and said, you know what, I can tell just by the proportion of time, money, energy you put into, uh, that's the thing you're living for. What do I sacrifice the most for? What, do, yeah, what am I giving up because I really have to do this thing or have this thing? Am I disappointed with God? Am I angry and frustrated because God's not giving me the thing I want? Because what tends to happen to people in the grip of idolatry is that they go into a real spiritual darkness when Jesus is thwarting their idolatry. You know, They get angry at him because they've not got this. What am I most afraid of? Or, or what do I think I couldn't live without if it was taken away with me? Whoa. What dream, what thing, what person, if it came down to it and God took it away, would I curse him to his face over? Say, I don't want to follow you because I haven't got this. What do I complain about the most? Is, is it the traffic? You know, when I'm driving down the M5 or up the M5? Okay, why does it bother me so much? What makes me the happiest? What do I want more than anything else? Is it my own comfort? We live in an exceedingly selfish society. Is it life experience or an adrenaline rush or you know this tour of this place and if I, if I never get there in my life, I will not be complete? Is it a, is it a boy or a girl and I, you know, I'll be subhuman if, unless this happens? See, everyone is worshipping something. It's, it's either God or it's an idol. We pour ourselves out to something or someone, even if it might simply be ourselves. And if it's not God, it's going to be a fatal attraction. It will be fatal. You will be destroyed over it. That's God's warning here. And the question that Isaiah wants to poke us with and prod us until we get down to the absolute truth about ourselves is, are you actually living for something that is just completely absurd and which will let you down and destroy you? Or are you living for the true and living God who is beyond compare, who is mighty to save, who, who does hear and speak, who, who is everything that we need, who is Jesus, who Isaiah is going to introduce us to next week, the one who not only is the true and living God who, who became man, the one who made us and owns us and who will judge us, but who would in fact come, as Isaiah predicted, to pay for the sins, even the sins of us idolaters, who have stored up God's wrath against ourselves, but who graciously and lovingly lays down his life to have us back, to free us from our addiction and our idolatry and, and save us for himself. And so I want to conclude in the words of one John. John the Apostle, very late in his life, writes these three magnificent letters in the book of Revelation. 
His final word in 1 John. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Father, we pray that we might hear the, heed the warning, that we might worship, that we might pursue, we might find our meaning and purpose in life in nothing other than you. Father, forgive us when we've not done that. Help us to do this deep soul searching and ask ourselves the hard questions of what are we living for, who are we living for, is it you? Father, we pray for our community in the group of such worship of lies, whether it be the religions that have come, the worship of money, and of comfort and of sex and all the other things. Father, we pray for your mercy as we go out this term through Easter and all the events that are on as we invite and we talk and we we share the gospel in our lives with those around us. Father, we pray for your mercy that you would bring many to forgiveness and life, that you would bring them to the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray for my, my friend Grima, Hindu lady, Father, you might forgive her of her sins and you might teach her that you are the one true God and Jesus is the only way to you. Father, help me as I talk to her about that. But Father, pray for your blessing on our community. Please send out your spirit. Help help the people around us not to rely on anything but Jesus. And we pray that we might be instrumental in that, pointing to him, loving him, serving him ourselves wholeheartedly as our God the one who died for us and who has risen again, the one who will come for us one day and who will judge the world. Father, we thank you for him, for your mercy and love, for the forgiveness that we've been given in him, and we pray that we might not live for anyone else but him. Amen.